Turn to Matthew chapter 4, please. Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to pray one more time, and we're going to read the passage again. We went through this passage last week, but there's more to say, especially before we move on. There's some things that we've got to establish before we can move forward in this text. So let's pray and ask God to lead us through it, and then we'll... um, We'll dive in. Lord, would you please call to us again? This, um, it's amazing, Lord, that Nick and Shelby and their, their family are here talking about a calling, and that's exactly where we're at as a church. Lord, you are walking by the sea of humanity, calling out, follow me, follow me, follow me. Lord, would you help us hear and heed that call today? But Lord, I pray that we could go into it as much as possible with eyes wide open, that we can know in general what it means to follow you and what it does not mean. Lord, would you help us so that we can, we can know? Lord, we love you. And we pray that you guide us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here we go. Let's start in verse 12 and we'll work our way through. I think we've got it up on the screen. Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, On them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two Uh, other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and they were in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called to them also. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and the paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Very apropos verses for you guys. Very cool. Last week, we we, uh, asserted that we really can't know Jesus unless we know what his main message is, was. Um, You can't know someone unless you know what they're passionate about. And Jesus was passionate about the kingdom of God is at hand. This is what we deciphered is the raw or fundamental foundational version of the gospel. We, We throw that word around, what is the gospel? Or even this morning, there's people that don't have access to the gospel. It's really important that we define what that is And if we don't start with Jesus' version of the gospel, uh, chances are high that we'll end up with a gospel that Jesus did not preach. And so we really want to figure out what this is. What is the gospel? Well, in its basic form, and remember, we're about to go into the Sermon on the Mount where he's going to get very detailed about the gospel. Matthew, the book is called, in the early church, they dubbed this whole book the gospel of Jesus. Everything Jesus did, everything that he said is, in a sense, the gospel But it all fits under this heading, rethink your life because the kingdom of God is available and accessible to you now. That's basically what we came up with, Jesus' own words. The the, The present availability of God's reign, God's rule is available and accessible to you now, so rethink everything. Change your course. Stop building your own kingdom. Stop. And start and come to my kingdom, where you have ex, you have accessibility to the to the presence of God. It is not only here, but is directly and interactively accessible to everyone, no matter where you're at, no matter um, what your track record is, no matter what your past is like. 
No matter what your standing in life is or what you have done or what you have not done, God's kingdom is here now. It's here right now. So what are you going to do about it, basically? Repent. Stop doing your own thing and make a choice. Who are you going to follow? And at that basic level, that message has not changed. That is exactly what the missionaries are going to be proclaiming to those people in the Philippines. That's, that's exactly what we proclaim here. And it's what Jesus is proclaiming to the world today. He walks by the sea of humanity and he says, and he sees that we're building all of our own kingdoms, we're about our own thing, we've got the American dream going on, we've got all of our goals and ambitions and we're in the grind to get it done. And he says, stop, follow me, follow me. Therefore, we're going to start building a working definition of what it means to be a Christian. That's what's happening today. We're starting at a foundational level. Picture that we're building a house of everything that it means. And at the foundation, we're going to lay some stones here. At number one, we're going to say from the outset, we need to notice that from the beginning, a Christian is a follower. Okay? Can we lay, I, want you to, I really want you to establish that in your mind. Maybe write a note about it. Uh, a Christian follows. At its base, a Christian is someone who follows Jesus. From the very beginning, it's very important that you see that from the outset of Jesus beginning to call the world to himself, the basic assumption of Jesus for his people on earth was that they would spend their entire lives being his students. Please understand that. He's a, you are a student of Jesus if you're a follower of Jesus. People found Jesus so admirable, so wise, so beautiful, so powerful, so wholesome, and so good that they were constantly seeking him out for guidance, for wisdom, to find out how they should live their lives. Something about Jesus, when he walked into a room, people would say, some people, people would say, okay, I don't know what it is, but he's living the life that every human was meant to live somehow. I want, I want to breathe the kind of air he's breathing. I want to know what makes this guy tick. Or people would react in an opposite way to that same feeling. This guy's living the kind of life that I know I should be living, therefore, I hate him. Have you met people like that? They have kind of a polarizing effect. You hate them, but if you're honest, it's because they don't have the regret that you have. Maybe they made better decisions than you did. Maybe they are more faithful and they're reaping the benefits of that life and you're bogged down by some stuff. You have a choice in that moment, right? People like that, you're like, gosh, I hate you because I love you. <laughs> People were constantly seeking him out. And this is curious because somehow in our Western context, we've been able to make Christians without them being followers. In fact, it, this is crazy to even say this to, for me, this is a debate in the Western world. Can you be a Christian and not be a disciple? If you've been with us just from the beginning of Matthew and you're following the dialogue, you should be, you should be flabbergasted by that question. From the very beginning, Jesus is making the two synonymous. Follow me. Notice what he does not say. Believe in me so you go, into so you go to heaven when you die. He does not say that. I'm not saying it's not true. But that's not his emphasis. That's not the gospel that he's emphasizing. He's, he's saying, follow me. Learn from me. This is not something just for tomorrow. It's something for right now. I'm showing you a new way to be human. If you, and it's called be, living in the kingdom of God. Breathing that air. If you want it, come see. Come watch. Okay? Um, uh, in my opinion... This fact in the Western world that we've abstracted discipleship or following Jesus from Christianity accounts for the weakness of Christianity in the world today and in the, in the Christian world today. At best, we believe that political and social action are the best ways to follow Jesus in our world. It's also why Christianity has become practically irrelevant when it comes to human development, when it comes to character development or overall just personal sanity and well-being in a person's life. In fact, in our tradition, most people think of discipleship for like super Christians, 
people that are actually gonna, that have the audacity to actually try to live the way Jesus told us to live. <laughs> we think, oh, that's for those that are real, the fanatics. Those are those that are really into it. Or maybe the seminarians, or maybe the people that are gonna come and do full-time ministry. I'm just a normal person. I'm just gonna believe the basic. That, that does not, ex- I just want you to know, that does not exist in the Bible, that kind of thinking. If you're gonna follow him, it's assumed that you're going to be a student. Also, one, one way that we've, gotten away with this in the Western world is that we have completely intellectualized Christianity. If you believe this, 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 and this, if you mentally assent to some doctrines that we think are in the Bible, then you'll, then you'll go to, your sins will be forgiven and you'll go to heaven when you die. That has nothing to do with how we live right now. We're completely divorced from that. It's like, in, uh, you know, it's insurance for eternity. Oh, Jesus is saying, I want to give you a life right now. I've come to give you life, and I've come to give it abundant life, a good life, a flourishing life, an indestructible life right here, right now, that you can start breathing that in and having access to it now. How? Follow me, he says. That's his call. The idea of following someone is actually not a religious idea. This is really very normal. This is kind of a, a human idea. Okay? In fact, who have you been following? You are a disciple of someone. That's the reality here. One thing is clear, you're someone's disciple, and there's no exceptions to this. So whose disciple are you? To be real, you're probably um, the disciple of several somebodies, both living and dead, right? And it's very likely that they may have shaped you in ways that were not maybe the best for you. They gave you some perceptions of reality that maybe ended up not being true. Or some ways, some gospels, some good news that we buy into that has led us astray. It's hard for us to accept this in the West because we think of ourselves as our own people. We're self-made people here in the West. If I'm, I need to make up my own mind, these are things that we say all the, that we say all the time. But the social scientists are now, I mean, the jury's out. It's very clear. Even science is catching up to this. That's, that's only, the only reason we have that individualism is because we've been taught that by others, by our, the masters of our culture. We enjoy a certain level of individualism here, not because we came by it by independently finding it out ourselves, but because others have told us this is the way we should think. Figure it out for yourself. What'd you say? Uh, it, you don't need community. You figure it out yourself. Get out there and work hard. Doesn't matter what your parents did. You have to make. You have to blaze your own trail. It's a very Western. You know, we'll, uh, I'm going out. I'm I'm getting away from Britain. I'm going out. I'm going to discover the world. It's what you know. It's great. Some good things, but it also distorts a lot of things. And it, we find some major hiccups in the gospel, especially what Jesus is saying. If the science is right, and I think it is, then one thing is for sure, we, you are the product of the people that you were raised around, or the people that you considered powerful people, or the people that you listened to the most. We were taught by our cultural masters. So following people, is, it's, it's an anthropological certainty. It's what it means to be human. We learn from others. It's just who we are. We learn from other people. But what does it mean to follow Jesus? And Jesus is going to show us exactly in great detail what it means to follow him as we get into the Sermon on the Mount. But before we get to it, we need to camp out here with these disciples for a second. We need to enter into their world because although these four disciples that we just met on the Sea of Galilee, they have a general idea, more than we do, I would say, of what it means to follow a rabbi in particular. They had, no, they had really no idea what was in front of them. They had no idea the three years in front of them, in particular, around following Jesus, what that meant. They had a general idea. Have you ever had that experience where you, in general, know what it's like to be in college, but then you get there, and now you really know what it's like in the day-to-day, the grind, the particulars? That's what it would have been like for them. They would have known what it meant to follow a rabbi in general, but every rabbi had their own kind of flavor or style or particulars of what it meant to follow them. To them, you need to understand, before Jesus was anything, he was 
a rabbi. In fact, in over, uh, I think the Bible records a a little over 90 interactions with Jesus, where people talked with Jesus. And over 60 of them, they referred to him as rabbi. Now, is he more than that? Sure. Is it going to be revealed that he's much more than that? Yes, absolutely. But as we're building a foundation for your fellowship, This is what the call is to us. Will you follow Jesus? And what does it look like to follow Jesus in Seattle in 2023? We're laying a foundation for that. It's good to start with that he's he's a rabbi because it frames up his calling to the world and it frames up what it means for a Christian to be a Christian according to Jesus. And you can see how radically different your Christianity is depending on your understanding of who Jesus is at a basic level. The word disciple in the Greek is the word mathetes. I want you to be familiar with that word in, uh, in that Greek word because he says it over and over again. It's the word mathetes, and you can translate it as follower, um, student, disciple. I personally prefer to, to the translation apprentice, not because I think it's a true translation, but because I think it's the closest thing in our culture that we can understand to what it meant to follow Jesus in that culture. It's still not perfect, but it's the closest. It gets us there a little further. Follower is a problem because we, what do we think of when we follow somebody? We think of following someone on Instagram or Twitter or something. You know, I follow this influencer or whatever. Not the same thing. Student doesn't really work for us either in the West because we think of going to a class for an hour and trying to master a body of knowledge. I'm trying to master math or aviation or or whatever it might be. But the problem with all of those things is it doesn't account for the character. In Jesus' day, a mathetes, very simply, a mathetes was someone who decided to be with another person in order to become capable of doing what that person does or to become the kind of person that person is. We're talking about the formation of a person. We're talking about full-bodied development, mind, body, and soul by being around somebody that you admire. So So rather than talking about head knowledge or expertise, we're talking about forming people. We're talking about character. We're talking about how you think, what you're passionate about, your opinions, your passions, what drives you, your goals, your priorities, what you deem as good, what you deem as bad. All of those things comes from being a mathetes. And the idea, this idea was the entire backbone of the educational system of that culture at the time. They were not only, when they thought of education, they were not only interested in giving your brain knowledge. They were interested in shaping and forming a kind of person. That's what the entire educational system was about. And it didn't start in the Jewish world. This goes back to the ancient Greeks. You know, Plato was the disciple of Socrates. He followed him around so that he could be formed into the type of person that Plato was. That's ex- precisely what's going on here. In the Jewish world, there were three basic levels of education. Until you were about 11 or 12, every child attended something called Bet Sefer, which means means house of the book. When you were 11, this is boys and girls, they all went to this. And the goal, by the time you were done, is that you would memorize Torah. So, So just think of this. By the time you were 11 or 12, you would have Genesis to Deuteronomy completely memorized. This is every child in that society. Okay? I mean, I just want to let that blow your mind for a second. Okay, that would be this, but that would be the end of it for most people. Most people after that, uh, boys would go back to their families. They would learn the family trade so they could take over the business when it was done. Women went back. They began to get married right away and began to bear children as quickly as possible because in a collective culture, not an individualistic culture, children meant safety, they meant security, they meant financial success, they meant um, it was a matter of national security. In ancient days, bigger families took over smaller ones, a little bit more intense back then, so the more children you had, 
The more you could teach them to do your trick, your business would be more successful, and on and on it went. So having children was a big was a big deal. You were considered blessed by God because you were preserving your people. Okay? But the best of the best of Bet Sefer would come into another level of, of education called Bet Talmud or House of Learning. And this was just for boys. Um, at this point, um, you would be taught by a full-time teacher, usually a scribe. Um, these schools were built right off the, the side of a synagogue most of the time, so you would go there. And this was a three-year school from 12 to 14, and the, the main thing was that you would memorize the rest of the Old Testament. So by the time you were 14, if you were a boy, a high patriarchal society, if you were a boy, you would have, if you went to Bet Talmud, you would have Genesis to Malachi memorized. I mean, let me just, let me just demonstrate. Let's see if I can, I mean, basically, this is Zechariah. That right there. You'd have that in your brain by the time you're 14, 14 years old, okay? So then, those kids, they usually be done. And I mean, wouldn't you? I'd be like, okay, I'm done. I feel like gold star, I did that. I'm gonna go back, learn the family trade and get on with life. But the best of the best of the best of Bet Talmud would go on from there to become a mathetes or to apprentice under a specific rabbi. And this was no easy task. This was not easy to do. You could not just pick a rabbi and start following them around. They had to pick you. And there was a grueling interview process. You had to apply. Sometimes you had to pay. You had to kind of pay to get yourself further up in line to be considered. And um, you would have several interviews, and the rabbi would just grill you to see if you, were even, if you were even worthy of what they called his yoke. A rabbi would walk around with a yoke, and that was his interpretation or his particular flavor or bent on, on um, the first five books of the Bible, okay, on, on Torah. What was his interpretation of it? If you wanted that yoke, were, did you have what it took? You know, and he would grill you about your knowledge of Torah, your acumen, your knowledge of Mishnah, your knowledge of the history of the nation of Israel, your moral life, your family background. He would go on and on and on and on. And finally, if the rabbi thought you had the stuff, if he thought you could handle it, he would come up to you and he would say, okay, and here was the phrase. He would say, follow me, follow me. And what that meant was, in a sense, life was drastically over. You would drop what you're doing. You would give up your, your other ambitions and what you were about before. You would reorganize, reprioritize your entire life to go on the road and follow this rabbi in this itinerant lifestyle. He would walk around and preach and proclaim his yoke wherever he went, wherever he was invited to go. And you had access, all kind of behind, a backstage pass to this man that you were following. Okay, contrast this with how Jesus acquires disciples. Who is Jesus, who is Jesus, well, first of all, where is Jesus at? Look at verse 12. It says, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went um, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, by the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Okay, this is Galilee. Galilee was a very fertile, agriculturally productive, progressive, and highly populated area. Um, the Roman secular historian Josephus says that there was about three million people residing in Galilee at this time. He said there's 204 villages. Each village had about 15,000 people. Do the math, 204 times 15, 15,000, it's 3 million people. So please don't get in your mind Jesus walking into some ghost town looking for anyone to minister to. Is there anyone here? That's not what was going on. There was a lot of people there that he was, going, that he was walking around. Um, it's also worth noting that Galilee was primarily made up of Gentiles. There were Jewish people. It was still Israel. There were synagogues around, but it was a major Roman, Roman trading route. So there was people from, a, from all over the empire were coming in and out of there. Um, there was also a lot of religious thought, um, not a, a homogenous way of thinking at all, very pluralistic way of thinking. So you have this really interesting region. 
It's in Israel, but the population is majority Gentile. It's kind of the industrial heartland of the nation. Uh, Blue-collar workers, that, go, that kind of thing going on. A lot of different ideas, um, mostly Gentiles, but also Jews there too. So you had a lot of segregation. Jews hated Gentiles. Gentiles didn't th- think very fondly of Jews either. So there was a lot of animosity. There was racism, segregation, those types of things going on. Not to mention, it was a major Roman trading route. So just a ton of people coming in and out of there. Um, Put all this together and you get a very lost kind of people with a lot of different ideas. So who is Jesus calling to follow him? Let me read verse 18. In the midst of this crowd, he says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make out teach you how to fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him because they knew what that meant. They're like, whoa. And for them, look, these are fishermen. These are people that probably could not afford to go to Bet Talmud or to follow a, to follow a rabbi around at all. Um, and then who else? Look at he, uh, verse 23. It says, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease, every affliction among people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And here's our word, and great crowds followed him from Galilee. So we don't just have four, uh, four fishermen following him. We've got great crowds following him, seeking his guidance, wanting to know how to live the way he lives. And what kind of people are these? We've got afflicted. We've got people who are diseased. Uh, The word oppressed is used. People oppressed by evil. So um, we're talking about the rejects of society. People oppressed by Rome. People oppressed by evil. People whose bodies aren't working right. People whose minds aren't working right. We've got, no doubt, mentally ill. Uh, We've got people uh, usually in that part of Galilee were people that did not appreciate Rome. Jewish folks, that like zealots that were planning to overthrow Rome. I mean, think um, think of people who don't like Seattle, that live, they don't live here. They live, you know, they live further out and they think, oh, that city, I don't like that place, right? I don't like the politics, I don't like the taxes, I don't like the property, I don't like the blah, 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 blah. That kind of disgruntled crowd, Jesus is there calling to them. Now, what would have been a, what, so let me frame this up to you by saying this. But to be a disciple, you, have, you, you would have had three goals, basic general goals. The first one was just to simply be with your rabbi. This, this is why the word student doesn't work for me. A student implies you go to a school for a class that's usually about an hour and then you leave and you go do your own thing. This was a 24-7 situation. You were with your rabbi. In fact, there was a saying to people who were mathetes. They would say, may the dust of your rabbi's feet constantly be covering your, your robes. In other words, may you be so close to him that you're catching the dust as he's walking. Like you just, you're with him all the time. Often you would sleep where your rabbi slept. You would see how he treated his family, how he treated his wife and children. You would listen to all of his teaching as he, as he traveled around. You would have access to ask him about, like, what did, that, what did you even mean by that? Okay? You would see his business practices. You would witness his integrity. You would listen to how he treated people. You would eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner around him. There was virtually no area of life that was not allowed to be seen by the rabbi's mathetes, which is why they were, so, they were vetted. So, you know, can you imagine if someone's going to follow you around your life? You'd probably want to know that person, right? Your job, and your job as a mathetes was to commit everything you witnessed and saw to memory. That was your job that you would, so what are you learning? Are you learning a body of knowledge? No, you're learning a person. You're learning a person. And yeah, there's knowledge in there, of course, but you're learning how that person sees the world because you wanna see the world that way too, which is the second goal. Uh, Secondly, 
the goal was to become like your rabbi. You were with your rabbi as much as you could because it was believed that the more you're with someone, the more you'll be like that person. Isn't this, this is just true. Have you ever, um, you know, when you were a kid, did you ever spend the night at a friend's house two times a night, three times a night, or whatever, or spend a lot of time, then you go to school with that person, and then you come home and you say something to your parents and your parents say, you, you sound like Johnny, or you sound just like your friend. You've been spending too much time. You start to become like each other, right? That was the idea. I want to become like you. So a one-hour class is not going to do it. I need to be engulfed by you. That was the goal. Um, Remember, this is not an individualistic, but a collective society. So it was expected that you would indeed copy something. Today, in our society, we have laws to make sure you don't copy people. (laughs) You know, you get in trouble for that. There they were expecting you. Do what I do. Do it like I do it. In a sense, you were trying to become just like your rabbi. You would talk like him, think like him, dress like him, adopt his way of looking at Torah and life. You were trying to get as much of him in your, in your, in your muscle memory as you could possibly get. And thirdly, finally, your goal was to do what he would do if he was you. That was the idea. This is why I like the idea of apprenticeship. Has anybody ever been on an apprenticeship or everybody, everybody apprenticed under somebody? It's usually in the trades, okay, yeah. The idea is, like, so if I was to lay, if I wanted to be a bricklayer or an electrician, right, I would find the electrician that I wanted to follow around because I want to do it the way he does because the way he does it gets more business. He does it with quality. He does it in this unique way. One ancient idea of this is the Masons. They built architecture in Europe that was so secret, it was a secret society because the way they built buildings was not open to the public, but it was so popular. So if you wanted to become a, like build stuff like the Masons did, you had to go and get into this secret society and learn their tricks and their secrets and how they, and it came with a whole philosophy. It was a religious type of a thing. It was very cultish, very weird. But the point was, I want to see life the way they see life so I can build cathedrals like that. If you've ever been to Europe, you know what they were capable of. It's incredible. That's the idea. So this is the essence of the kind of life that Jesus is calling you and I to when he says to follow him. This is what it means to be a Christian. On the basic level, You're someone, you're a follower of Jesus. You're his mathetes. And you might become other things. He's more things than that, but you're at least this. You're a lifelong student. Now, let's flesh this out. What does this mean for us? Number one, it means that Christians are with Jesus all the time. Okay, if you're considering what what a Christian life looks like, not what the Western world has told you a Christian life looks like. We're, We're coming right from the Bible here. If you're considering what it means to be a Christian, number one, it means that you're with him. A Christian is someone who is with Jesus. And notice how personal this is. A Christian is not somebody who just believes certain things. It's at least that. But a Christian is someone who believes a person and who knows someone who is living, who's alive. We have a relationship with the master. We have access and accessibility to him and to his kingdom and to the air that he's breathing. And we practice this. This is something that we practice. Being a Christian is about knowing a person. This is the first and most important goal of discipleship. This is, and this is a reward in and of itself. You know the people that you admire. Don't you just want to be around them? Just being with them makes you feel healthy. It's like marrow in your soul That's who Jesus is. Christians long to experience the presence of Jesus. We long to, I mean, picture, have you ever, okay, you don't have to, you know, admit this out loud, but have you ever admired someone where it's like, it's getting a little creepy, you know? And what do you do when you're in a room with them? You're listening to every word they say. You're watching exactly what they do, how they do it, right? Right? When they get up to leave, you, you kind of, where are they going? Are they leaving or are they coming? Well, they must be going to the bathroom. You just want to be around them. You just want to be around them at all times. Think of that with Jesus except magnified. You just long to absorb his health 
his wholeness, his well-being, his moral buoyancy. You just feel it and you just want to be around it. You feel like you're a better person just by being in his orb, in his orbit. That's the idea. But this is really, this idea is really hard. It means that in a sense that we sleep next to him, we eat with him, we wake up in his presence. But how does this work? You would, you would not be a normal human if you did not ask that question. How does it work when I can't see him? When he's not here in the flesh, right? How does this work? It's really hard to practice his presence when he's not here physically. And Jesus fleshes that out. He gives major instructions on what, it, what a life will be like when he's not there. And he, he says that it will be his spirit will be with us at all times. In John 14, 15, and 16, it says that it's through a relationship with the Spirit of Jesus. He says, behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I will, I'm with you at all times. My spirit, my personality, my love, who I am, all of that will be with you. Again, this is not as mystical as you might think. Some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you have lost parents. And they're gone, but at the same time, you still see life through the way they see life. You know, when you, you're, have you ever driven down the road and you see something that that um, deceased person would love? And you go, oh my gosh, she would love that. Their spirit is with you, in a sense. You get their personality. Or, oh, he would laugh so, he would think that's hilarious. Or one thing we say to Noble all the time is, your grandmother would have loved you. I, I can't wait for you to meet her in heaven because she, she would just delight in you. What we're saying is we know her. Her spirit is here. We're interacting with her idea, with her personality. Jesus is saying very literally, though, you will understand me because you've been with me all this time, but I will actually literally be with you. My spirit, my power, my affect will be accessible to you at all times. This is what, what Jesus meant in John 15 when he said, I am the vine, you are the branches, stay here, abide in me. The word abide is the word meno in the Greek, and it means to reside or live in him. In other words, we're to be with Jesus at all times, and this is something that we practice. Someone who's becoming one of my fast favorite reads is a man named Dallas Willard. I feel like he's uh, a mentor I should, have, I should have known about for a long time. He's got this great quote. He says, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in this practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may be challenged by our burdensome habits on dwelling on other things less than God. But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and they can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become like the pole star of our inward being. He's making the point that to live this way doesn't come automatic. It takes practice. It's not going to come overnight, but it's developed through practices, ancient practices that we call the practices of the early church, like silence, study, solitude, reading about Jesus, imagining him, interacting with him in prayer, doing those things. If you... I would encourage you, get started now. If you're just following your, you're starting your apprenticeship with Jesus, start having time of just quiet interaction with him. Prayer, um, coming to church and interacting with his spirit through other people is just phenomenal. All of this implies that we are being formed. In other words, in a sense, Christianity is something you are or you're not. That is true. And yet, in a sense, Christianity is something that you are also becoming at the same time, all right? Several of you are in here are married. You remember that day? Hopefully you remember that day. There was, a, there was a moment that you were not married, right? And you gave these vows. You remember standing there and you said, I promise to do this, and I vow to do this, and I promise to do this. You didn't even really know what you were saying. 
Let's be real. You didn't know what that even, sickness and in health. You have no idea what that actually means. For better or for worse. I'm leaning toward better, but I'll be there for the worse. But you don't know what worse actually means. Maybe you've been in a few years now. Now you know a little bit more, right? But there, you're there and you're giving these promises. And yet one second, one second you were not married. And then you say, I do. And that next second, you are married. And yet... It takes you a lifetime to grow into the vows and those promises that you just promised that person that you would be, right? It takes a lifetime of trial and error and regrouping and figuring it out. That's the idea here. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are his mathetes, and yet you are being formed into somebody. You're being formed into a Jesus person by being with him. To be a disciple is not to be perfect, Right? Um, think of any apprentice that you might, uh, that you might admire in, the, in any field, whether it be a sport, whether it be, uh, you know, a philosophy or a trade, whatever it is, and you talk to an apprentice that's doing well, and they'll still tell you, I could still learn. I still make mistakes. I still mess up, but I'm still following. I'm still following. I'm still following. That's the idea that I'm trying to get you to see when it comes to being a follower of Jesus. It's not that you're perfect, but it is hard. You're gonna find out. And I'm just gonna warn you, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is gonna offend every one of you at least once. I promise, it's going to happen. It's going to be very uncomfortable. And he's not saying it's not doable. He's saying, no, I actually want you to live this way. Straight up. I want you to live this way. This is what it looks like to have the good life. And this implies that we're being formed. And the goal is to be like Jesus. We do what he says to do because we want to live the life that he's living. We want to have that kind of life. We want to be like our rabbi. It's really simple. What we're, and what are we talking about here? We're talking about transformation. You ever look in the mirror or mentally look into yourself and say, man, I wish I could get over that or I wish I could be different. I wish I could drop that habit. I wish I could get out of debt. I wish I could have a better job. I wish I was more content in my life. I wish I didn't get angry so easily. What are you talking? You're like, I wish I could be transformed into another person. That's what, that's what the Bible's talking about here. Hopefully you're not thinking, I wish I could just bring on these other accessibilities. No, Jesus is saying, you need to be changed into an entirely different kind of person. This is what the Bible is talking about. The Christianity is about nothing if it's not about change, right? Why are you here if Christianity does not have the power to change you? Why are we here? It's a powerless religion if it doesn't have the power to get rid of anger and replace it with love, right? I mean, are we on the same page there? This seems really basic to me. If this is just some fun thing to believe, I mean, there's tons of fun things to believe out there. Why are we here? Because we believe it's worth it, and I want to be like him. I want to live the kind of life he lives. That's what, I'll be honest, that's what keeps me coming back. I want to be more like Jesus and less like me. <laughs> you hear an amen in the back, it's not my wife. Um, this is why, in other words, you are being sanctified. That's the Christian word. This is the Christian term for this is sanctification. It's a process over time by which you are being changed into the image of Christ. That's the idea. It's a change, gradual change over time in which you're being changed into the image of Christ. This is why Christians pay, uh, pay attention to what we spend our money on, uh, what kind of TV we're watching, what kind of music we listen to. It, we, we get the rap that this is legalism or something like that. It's actually, no, it's because we realize we're being discipled. Let me just be honest with you. If you're, if you're scrolling through Instagram and social media, do not be fooled. You are being discipled. You are being influenced by how you think, your passions, what you think the good life is. You're constantly being fed a gospel. This is good news. This is good news. That's why Christians, we're really careful with that. Because we want to be around our rabbi and ingest what he's saying. Not with our head in the sand, but so that we can be wise enough to compare it. So we're not talking about mere behavior. We're not talking about, uh, you know, complete overhaul from the, uh, you know, of your habits. We're talking about transformation from the inside out. And finally, 
The idea is so that we could do what our rabbi does or that we would do what he would do if he were us. I think that's more accurate. That's the idea. We want to live the kind of life. We want to live our life. But how can we live our life the way Jesus would live our life if he was us? You might think that that's semantics. It's actually really, really important. As a disciple of Jesus, I am with him by choice and by grace, learning from him how to live in the kingdom of God. That's what we're learning to do. How do I live in the kingdom of God? You followed a rabbi around because they were good at something. Electrician, soccer, music. What was Jesus good at? He was good at living in the kingdom of God. He was an expert at living the kingdom of God, and therefore, he was a certain kind of person. That's the idea. We look at Jesus, and hopefully, you've already been just super impressed by who he is. You've just been like, God, he is the human. I want that. Okay, follow me. If you want to live, to, to learn to live in the kingdom of God, as followers of Jesus, we are living, learning how to live in God's kingdom. Another way of saying this is to say that I am learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if, if he were me. So in other words, you're not losing your identity completely. Do you understand that? We're not becoming another Jesus because there's only one. Agreed? And his life was amazing and incredible. So it's not like we're going to do the stuff that Jesus did. No, I need to lead my life as he would lead my life if he were me. That's the idea. You still stay you, but you're you being you as if Jesus were you. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? It's important. I'm not learning how to learn his life uh, because his life on earth was just amazing and glorious in its own right. I'm learning how to do everything I do in the manner that he would do it if he were me. So what are some things that he did? What are some things that Jesus did? Well, I mean, we can read it in our verse. He pro, uh, in verse 23, it says, he proclaimed the gospel. He proclaimed the gospel, right? So, how would, how would Jesus proclaim the gospel if he were you? Not how do you proclaim the gospel if you are him, because you're not. How would Jesus proclaim the gospel if he were you, with your personality, with your makeup, how would, how would he do that? For some, he would fly an airplane into the Philippines to help support others on the ground. For some, it would, he, would, he would support. I would give, if Jesus were me and he had the money that I had, he would give financial donation to others that are doing that kind of work. See, you're still you. That's my point. He lifts you out of yourself, but only so much. You're still you, but you're being changed into the kind of you that is his image. Some of you have talent. What would Jesus do if he had that kind of talent? Some of you have certain interests, or you're just, you've got like a mechanical mind. How would Jesus do that if he were you? Do you see what I'm saying? What else did he do? He healed the sick. How would he do that if he were you? He casts out evil. How would he do that with your personality? He ate with people, dined with people who were far from God. How would he do that if he were you? With your house, with your table, with your cupboard, with your food, with your resources. How would he do that if he had your stuff, if he were you? That's what we're asking here. He stood up to corruption. That's one of the main features of the God. He went up and he said, you're sick. You're, this is wrong. How you represent God is wrong. He stood up to corruption and injustice. How would he do that if he were you in your context, in your body, with your mind and your strengths and your weaknesses? How would he do that? That's the idea. Is that what we think of when we think of Christianity as following Jesus? These are our goals. That's my whole what my whole life is focused on about being a disciple, it's very important for us to understand this if we're going to move forward. Number one, we need to be with Jesus all the time. And hopefully you're so impressed with him that you long to do it. When I meet a Christian that, that are like, I have to read my Bible, I just know that you, you, we still haven't, we're not there yet. 
If it's like, man, I have to, I mean, can you imagine being married to somebody and saying, oh, I have to go spend time with that person, right? That would be, I'm getting some nudges. Oops, sorry if I hit a soft spot there. But you know, it's not, you know, it's not right. It's not right. You, you know, and that person does not want you to have to be with, they want you to want you to be with them. That's the idea. With Jesus, it's not that I don't wake up in the morning, because I do, I wake up super early and I'm not a morning person. It's not because I'm so, um, it's not because I'm a morning person like it's a genetic thing. Like some people are born night people. No, I wake up early, I get my butt out of bed, I brew the coffee, I have this whole ritual that I do every morning because I'm so impressed with Jesus and I want to be around him. I wanna start my day in his presence. That's the point. It's not because I'm disciplined or look how holy I am or look at how great, nothing, it's I'm impressed with a person and I'm driven to be with him. That's as simple as that. So that I can be like him. I wanna go into my day every day with it carrying his presence. I wanna go to work. I wanna, I'm gonna interact with a lot of faces. I get to be a school teacher during the days. I'm gonna see a lot of students. I'm gonna talk to a lot of kids. I'm gonna talk to their parents. I'm gonna interact with colleagues and teachers and all of these things. I want to be, I wanna interact with them like Jesus. I wanna be like him in this world. And that's what it means to proclaim the gospel. It doesn't just mean with your words, it means with your person with your character, with your quality. Do you see how incredible this is? How it, it especially staves away from the whole compartmentalization situation. At church, or when I'm doing religious things, I'm like Jesus, but my work life and my home life are not, you know, that's for, for me. No, 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 this is an all out thing that he's inviting us into. I want your whole life. Everything is practicing the presence of Jesus. That's what he's calling us into. Now, we still don't know a lot, but we know enough to get started, right? Think of the three things. It's to be with him, it's to be like him, and to do what he would do if he were me. That's where we're gonna start with. Next week, we start the Sermon on the Mount where he is going to get very, very specific on what it means to be a follower of him as a rabbi specifically. Okay, and he's gonna dismantle what a lot of us think. I'll just warn you right now. All of us, every one of us, he's gonna take a shot at every one of us, including me. I read the Sermon on the Mount every day this summer, and it hurt every single day. It confronted me every single day. It dismantled my thought and put it back together every single day. That's what we're in in for. I wanted to, so we must be warned before we proceed.